0: Welcome to the No-Till Farmer Podcast, brought to you today by BioTill Cover Crop Seed. I'm Julia Gerlach, Executive Editor for No-Till Farmer. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about new episodes when they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank BioTill Cover Crop Seed for sponsoring today's episode. Biotill Cover Crops, a pioneer and leader in cover crop seed, represents a complete lineup of seeds suitable to a wide range of soil types and grown conditions. Biotill Cover Crop vendors are committed to your success and provide local resources, education, guidance, and tips and tricks to ensure your plantings have the correct foundations for success. The original producers of Bounty Annual Ryegrass, Biotill Cover Crops continues to add new and improved cover crop and forage varieties, including Enricher Radish, Bayou Kale, Shield Broadleaf Mustard, African Forage Cabbage, and Mihi Persian Clover. With over 30 years of experience in production, processing, packaging, and shipping, you won't be able to find a better fit for your farm anywhere else. Learn more at biotil.com. That's Biotill.com. That's B I O T I L L.com. The recently retired manager of Dakota Lakes Research Farm, Dwayne Beck, has spent decades studying ways to improve soil functionality. Operating in a relatively dry environment, his early research was focused on irrigation, but it shifted to no-till systems when he came to understand the error in the common belief that conventionally tilled systems created less runoff than no-till systems. He has since gone on to challenge many of the generally accepted practices in ag, and his talk at the 2022 National No-Tillage Conference focused on what he calls the broken water, nutrient, and carbon cycles in agriculture. For this episode of the No-Till Farmer podcast, we followed up with Beck about his time at Dakota Lakes and how he came to develop some of his controversial beliefs. He explains why he's not interested in signing up for a carbon sequestration program, ways farmers can help repair the broken ecosystem services, how Dakota Lakes Research Farm intends to achieve net zero energy by 2026, and much more.
1: Dakota Lake started as a response to farmers on the Missouri Riverfront having huge problems with runoff under irrigators. Right. I mean, and that that was the people who started it. And we were trying to address that. And the reason they were getting runoff is they were doing tillage, but I'm not sure I realized that was the main culprit right at the beginning. They were told that to grow good irrigated corn, you had to do a lot of tillage, which they were okay with. This is in the 70s and going up into the 80s when, you know, when the situation was a little bit like now, commodity prices were very high and interest rates were low and fuel costs were low, you know, kind of like it was a year ago or something. And then all of a sudden the interest rates went up and uh, fuel prices, uh, Arab oil embargo happened. You know, we had huge increases in very quickly in the price of fuel and fertilizer stuff. And they were just they were just and the interest rates went way up and they were just going broke. And and they're they trying to irrigate and the water's just running back to the river. And so we started trying to address that uh, me and one of the ag engineering guys and one of the extension people and we were doing rippers and dikers and dammers and all kinds of stuff. And, and we put in a no-till thing because i was interested in no-till type systems from the standpoint of stopping the dirt from blowing on the dryland things we put in no-till as a as a check because everybody at that time in the industry said that no-till produced the most runoff not the least <laughs> <And> <laughs> surprise <laughs> so it was, of, it was one of those things and we you know we just we were doing that work at gettysburg north of here uh out of either brookings or redfield eventually you know so it's at least a two hour and usually a four hour drive to do stuff mm-hmm. and we had a field day one day and showed them a bunch of different irrigation sprinklers because the other thing they wanted to do is put on lower pressure irrigation sprinklers to mm-hmm. save pressurization energy and when you lower the pressure you increase how fast you put the water on so they were putting on an inch of water in probably 40 minutes and it was running off and they wanted to put an inch of water on in six minutes to save energy but it was going to run off even more and so we started doing some things with rippers and dikers and also with the no-till thing and and we had an irrigator that we changed all the sprinklers four times going through the field and so we had all these different comparisons and we had a field day and after the field day we all went to bob's steakhouse and got smarter and smarter as the night went on and and everybody thought we should do more of this research and i said you can't really do it from away from here you're going to have to have a rudimentary site that you own or somebody owns that that we can have for our own to do the research year after year and so they you know one of them had a good friend that was a legislator and they all knew the governor and they said we'll just get money and give it to the university and they can start that and they said well you really don't want to do that you want to own it yourself so you can control it and that's what they did I mean there was there's was really four of us by the end of the night that were sitting there conjuring things and writing stuff with napkins and and it started from that and it took them 10 years to oh. put it together because it was the 80s and nobody wanted to have anything to do with agriculture in the 80s and whatever and and i don't know just serendipity uh the guys kept at it and we finally got a good governor and he happened to be the cousin of one of our board members and they had a family reunion (laughs) and he was up for reelection. i mean there's all these little things came together that it's an interesting story to the people involved but the fact that it's farmer owned is is unique and they cooperate with the university to run it and we had a director of the experiment station at the university that was in favor uh-huh. of doing this yeah. and um and if he wouldn't have been in favor I, I don't know where it'd gone now there's there's another group that's trying to do this In the Jim River Valley, like I said, we were in the Jim River Valley doing this stuff, and a lot of the no-till things started in on those layered soils in a wet environment. So people that tell me you can't do it in a wet environment on these kind of soils, they lie because I did that, that's where we started. But when we left, unfortunately, because of politics, when this place started, they closed the station at Redfield, and so that whole center part of the state has not had good research in the last thirty years, and that's why they have a lot of salinity and stuff because nobody was there to show them how stupid that was. And um, you know, and, and the salinity there is a is a if they were going to take a bunch of water over there and irrigate. That salinity would have destroyed that whole river valley within thirty years if they'd have done that but it's it's like the all the dams they built in the west and whatever everything progress you couldn't really say you can't do that that that's progress you had to you had to do that well the first thing you need to do is look at the water you're you're getting for free so i feel good about that part of the the deal i hope those guys i hope those guys are successful they don't have as benevolent the university right now as they did it, we have but
2: Is that a different university system or the same?
1: Well, it's the same university, but the way research is funded in the United States is totally stupid now. That's a problem that we're running into nationwide. Everything, the research is not visionary at all. I call it chasing the soccer ball.
2: It seems to me like I keep seeing, you know, we're doing this study, but it's just a reiteration of a study that was done.
1: It's already been done.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Like, why are we studying this again?
1: Because there's money. (laughs) In the old days, the land-grant university, the states got a formula fund. They got money from the federal government based on a formula, and they used to call them formula funds. They went directly to the state with no strings attached. And then the state legislature would send it on to the, the idea was they'd send it on to the ag experiment station at the university, and they would design research programs. But you had this solid money that you knew it, whatever. And so now you're trying to think long-term. I know I'm going to have this money every year for whatever, and, and we're going to do some things. And and that changed, started to change with Ronald Reagan. For some reason, he didn't like that or his people didn't like it. And I think it was his people from California that didn't think they got a big enough formula because if they produce so much stuff, they think they should get more. And so they changed it to this grant-based thing that we have now, and, and that's the soccer ball, you throw a grant out and everybody lines up, they throw the ball out and everybody follows the ball. Yeah. I mean, nobody guards the goal, nobody, you know, no, there's nobody to pass to because they're all right behind the ball. And, and that, that's what happens. And, and so you get no creativity involved.
3: Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And,
1: and so that changed. And but now, you know, Dakota Lakes, where we can keep our own Income. We have some sources of income for doing things that aren't related strictly to grants and whatever. And mm-hmm. you know, we do get some basic support from the university for staff and stuff because we host. We host their small plot research and you know a lot of their variety of trial stuff and whatever. I see. And um, so,
2: who are the other three who kind of got the whole thing going with you?
1: Well, two of them are dead. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> red Paul was one. He was Daryl Red Paul. He was extension irrigation specialist, doing that with an animal science degree. So he, he he probably the best extension guy I ever knew because he could just he could, if he told the farmers corn was pink and I told him it was green, they'd believe red every time. <laughs> um, so it it you know he just had a lot of he just had a lot of juice with the farmers, and then Ann Cronin was um one of the farmers his his grandson is on our board right now so that tells you a bit about the philosophy of this organization because it goes you know that's that's a nice thing about sam because he's part of that fraternity so to speak and
2: sam ireland you're saying yeah yeah over three well his
1: dad was his dad's on the board the fourth guy in the in that meeting was Ralph Holsworth, and he still farms.
3: Oh, okay.
1: And um, with his sons now in the business. But um, I took Sam up there yesterday, and of course, Teddy's about Sam's age, maybe a few years older, but maybe 10 years older. But um, And they got over in a corner, and they are talking, you know, and Teddy's going, yeah, when we started this, everybody was laughing. He said, I don't even remember when we started. I was just, and he didn't. He was... He was just a baby but he said my sisters talk about everybody was picking on him because their dad was a goofy guy that <laughs> wasn't doing tillage you know and didn't know how to farm and, mm-hmm. and whatever now everybody there is no tillers
2: so okay. yeah you had mentioned about discovering when you were working on the irrigation projects that no-till had less runoff so i'm just curious how long did it take you once you started doing those studies to figure out that no-till was not running off as much
1: well that kind of happened right away because we had you know since you're dealing with irrigation we had runoff plots in there these bigger areas where we had stage recorders and flumes and all this stuff and you direct the water and you have to bring the machines in there as the irrigators coming (laughs) you know and then go in with your raincoat on and pull the paper off and take it down to the next one it was god-awful and but it measures runoff and and once we realized that it was a really good idea for irrigators but it's a better idea for 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 a dryland guy because an irrigator guy if he has enough money and time he can pump more water <laughs> but dryland guy if he loses it is just gone and um so that's you know that that's the reason we have the adoption here. I mean, if you come here and you can drive all the way to Bismarck and out to Beach and to Haver, Montana, there's just not much tillage done out there anymore and across Canada. So, yeah, that that saving the moisture is really good for us. It's really good for a guy in a more humid area. He just has to figure out how to make it a positive thing, not negative, which is really cranking up the intensity of what you're doing but uh, for us it was easier and you know most of the guys like ralph had seven irrigators and his cousin had three or four and we drive all by all these places that used to have 10 or 12 irrigators and whatever and they said they don't have any mm-hmm. because it it it's too expensive pump the water up there and and it doesn't give them enough of a yield increase and and so you make more money per dollar invested on dry land as compared to the irrigated so the irony was it was the irrigators that started this place Uh and most of them have quit irrigating Cronin still have irrigators because they have low left they only have about 100 foot left but Ralph had 400 feet so he had to pump the water 400 feet up the hill and then he had to put some pressure on it to whatever so he was you know, I don't know, twenty years ago he was paying a hundred dollars an acre for electricity. So kind of takes your breath away, especially when you know, when you have six, seven dollar corn, maybe not so much. But his, you know, the difference is for him on his soils is probably only about twenty or thirty bushel advantage. Oh. And and it's you know, it's a pain in the butt. You know, yeah. you gotta keep those machines running and whatever they're we have them here because whatever, but that that was the epiphany. And they had they, they one time, the first name was Dakota Lakes Irrigation Research Farm. Oh, had irrigation in there. And so then I had to get and take that out of there and, and just call it, you know, Research Farm so we could do all the dry land stuff too. Because by the time we got here, we were pretty well sure that, you know, the biggest values in the dry land. I don't know, I probably showed those numbers, but in, 2015, we did a, an analysis of our economic impact. And we take the middle part of the state here, the center, let's say fourth, all the way from North Dakota border to the slice from North Dakota border to the Nebraska border right down through the center. And um, compared to 1986, before any of the stuff had started, we increased the value $1.6 billion. grain grain production in that area i mean it's just huge Mm
3: -hmm.
1: and in at today's prices it'd be twice that Mm -hmm. at least and so you know as we were driving around yesterday you know i pointed out to sam all the new houses and the new grain bins and the big machine sheds and stuff that were there that weren't there before and it's because they have this productivity you know the bad part is productivity is based on exporting right. stuff and we have to close that loop and I th- you know I think I talked about that the national no-till is closing that mm-hmm. making it a circular system and not a linear system of in and out yeah.
2: yeah yeah when you were at the no-till conference this year of course you've spoken there many times but um, you had some very strong words for the audience. Um, you titled your presentation "Doing the Wrong Thing Better in 2022." Um, but
1: that's what we do. Is we're we're it's yeah. not the right thing, but we're getting really good at it. We're very I, very efficient.
2: I, I want to say because this I thought the way you introduced it was so interesting. You know, you've been you've, you reminded everybody that we've been talking about carbon and no till for decades. You said that 30 years ago, you predicted that by this time, there'd be no need for a no-till association because everyone would be no-tilling. And bottom line, you just said the system is broken. And, you know, you talked about the need to fix the research system, subsidies, the water cycle, all of that. So I'd love for you to talk about that. You know, what has gone wrong? How do we fix it? And if you want, we can start with the research and describe how we could manage that research model better
1: yeah well, it's all interrelated. I mean the research people tend to try to treat symptoms that occur they we really don't aren't very good at trying to look at root causes and say what do, how do we fix that yeah and mm-hmm. you know, we're just part of that big cog, and it's I'm not sure who's making the decisions on what we're doing, but there's no grand plan involved in terms of how do we fix um, I told some Senate. Ag advisor people, if they did everything that we talked about, they'd save so much money on flood control in the Mississippi River and dealing with hypoxic zones in the Gulf of Mexico. And we'd fix all those things. And they don't really believe that. See, but that's the kind of look it's going to take, is to get 200 miles high and look down and say, how do we fix all this stuff? And I kind of addressed that at the beginning, I'm sure, someplace where I talked about, you know, the Europeans came here to mine our our soils because they had mined theirs out. And there's there's a good book I've read in the interim between then and now about the Haber-Bosch process. Mm. The guys who, Haber and Bosch, who kind of, the Germans that developed the ability to take nitrogen out of the air and make ammonia and they needed that to make fertilizer, but also to make explosives. Right, Right. and uh, there was a British head of the scientific society in England at the time that predicted that most of the developed world was gonna starve in the next two or three decades because uh, that was in early 1900s because the supply of mineable nitrogens pretty much gone. The Guano Guano Islands off the coast of South America and the um, nitrates that in the deserts of Chile and they're pretty much gone. Mm-hmm. And and so we we're all going to starve to death because we we're dependent on that nitrogen. Mm-hmm. And you know, Haber and Bosch came along and developed ammonia and allowed us to keep fighting wars, unfortunately. <laughs> but but also, you know, fertilizer. So what do we do? It's such a big energy demand making that nitrogen from from fossil fuels but that's how they do it so how do we get rid of that
2: i i'd like to ask you about this i mean there's uh some various organizations working on green ammonia
3: um yeah.
2: making it from wind or solar yeah w- what's your thought on that
1: that's all right i mean we we i know ron elverson and i years ago um He was working on an ethanol plant, and they said, well, the problem you have in an ethanol plant, they put out a lot of CO2. (laughs) What do you do about that? Uh And and I recommended that they develop some wind and Mm -hmm. solar capability to make their own nitrogen and then combine it with their CO2 to make urea. What urea is is actually ammonia uh, connected by a, CO2 molecule. So you, you stick the ammonia's on where the oxygens are in the CO2. So that's what urea looks like. So you, you would then take your CO2 that you're putting off from your ethanol plant, make it into fertilizer, send back to the farm where the corn came from. And they actually looked at it. And in the technology, this is at least 10 years ago, the technology was, is what's there it's Just cheaper to do it the other way, you know. The green ammonia is all right; it's complex, uh-huh. and and that's that's fine. Um, you know, it's it's that's the kind of thing we need to do. I mean, we're we're destined to be fossil fuel neutral here by twenty twenty six. So we're you know we're in line to get our Ford electric Ford pickup and put up our solar panels. And I mean, that's the biggest thing you can do is take cut out your carbon use you know it's we need to think of things that do that locally is fine and you know the idea of putting solar panels over every piece of ground that makes no sense to me but Mm -hmm. I think solar panels in every farm building makes lots of sense in every house
3: Mm -hmm.
1: but the the industry doesn't want that because they want to control it
3: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: I, they want they want the big wind farms and the big whatever so they can they can control it they can't control it if all of us heathens out here have our own solar panels for god's sake
2: right. <laughs> <laughs> well but there is still the, the issue with the batteries and the heavy metals and whatnot that takes to make those components right or is that not as big an issue as some people make?
1: well the bottom of the ocean's got all kinds of that stuff just laying there and uh-huh. is, up you know but it's you don't have to mine it just pick it up but uh we're going to come up with better batteries hydrogen is a good battery hydrogen either as a fuel cell or hydrogen as a drop in fuel i mean i i worked on hydrogen as my my senior chemistry project when i was in college which was which was yeah not long after the vietnam war right at the end so it you know there, it's it it comes down to to who has the money and who the thing is about fossil fuels is they haven't been required to pay their full cost mm-hmm. they haven't had to pay for their unintended consequences
3: mm-hmm.
1: and just simply because they had such developed such big political power and we've let them do that sure right. but because we're all afraid if we don't have Gas to go to the grocery store, oh. we're going to die. Well, um,
2: <laughs> become very dependent on fossil fuels for sure.
1: We yeah, try. and you know whatever, but it's they denied this whole thing using a lot of the same techniques as uh, tobacco mm-hmm. producers did. So it's it's unfortunate, and we haven't been very good at at even in agriculture at pointing to the good practices mm-hmm. as compared to the bad practices. We don't we don't want to call out the guy whose dirt is blowing Mm -hmm. and, and say, and and that kind of happened here now. I mean, it used to be that when we first started this, that was just considered cost of doing business. So the the ditch would fill with dirt and things like that. And now the norm, the social moray is that you don't have your dirt in the ditch. And so the guy who has his dirt in the ditch is shunned. To a certain extent which is kind of interesting but that's not the way it is in most of the united states that's the way it is in this area but
2: so right around dakota lakes you guys have had a huge impact in that area
1: yeah Correct? and it goes further than that i think it goes you know quite a, you know there's kansas and whatever those guys all just kind of raise hell about people having dirt blowing but yeah. that legally they don't do anything to them uh-huh. you know so- and they don't take money away from in their farm bill and but it's still, that's kind of the strongest thing you can do is the social side of it. And we haven't really done that very well in lots of areas, um, you know, stuff into drain tiles. You know, that's not acceptable either, actually. And and um, what gives you the right to dump your nutrients in my water?
2: Yeah, so you're saying people shouldn't be allowed to use drain tile?
1: Well, you can use drain tile, but don't put your nutrients in my water. So you figure out how to handle that. I mean, I saw a thing somewhere that the guy was the guy was going to start this list of this is what you have to do to be sustainable or whatever. And his first thing was, if you're going to put in drain tile, you have to have a catchment that's capable of holding three years of, of runoff and then reuse the water. You know, like in Iowa, where that nitrates are higher than drinking water standards, so they have to at Des Moines, they have to take nitrates out of the water in order for people to drink it. Mm-hmm. It's not naturally that way. I mean, that's it, coming out of the drain tile. And they all kind of get together and, and the judges and everybody and they go, well, just let them do that. They have to. But no, there's other ways of doing that. But mm-hmm. You go back, it must have been 12 years ago or so at least. Last time they were in Des Moines with the uh, National No-Till, I, I talked. Um, I was a lead off guy. I said, welcome to Des Moines. Don't drink the damn water, whatever you do. <laughs>
2: uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. And it's sort of amazing, isn't it? That it's not gotten any better in 12 years.
1: Well, I, I, my daughters are all water engineers, right? You probably knew that.
2: I think you told me that.
1: Yeah. And, and so Dee was at this workshop conference, whatever, and um, and she does stuff with both water and wastewater. Mm. And she came, she came home. I mean, she it was in Pierce, so she stayed with us when she was here. And she was talking about they'd spent the whole afternoon talking about what they're going to have to do with drain tiles because if people start using water out of these, the amount of stuff you're allowed to put in a water body is is determined by what that water body is used for. So if this river is not used for anything, um, you can dump a lot of stuff in it. But if people start wanting to swim in it and use it for drinking water downstream or whatever, then then it changes the regulations on what you can dump into it. Mm -hmm. And so that that impacts cities and municipalities and stuff that are treating the water and then dumping their you know taking the bad stuff out and then how how concentrated can the stuff that they dump back in there be and she said a lot of the waters in south dakota now are changing because more people are using them for a water source for drinking and for swimming and stuff so people who have drain tile are not going to be allowed to put same amount of stuff in that water mm-hmm and and she said they're all trying to figure out what the hell they're going to do about that because nobody wants to tell the farmers you can't do that but i mean why not yeah and these these bioreactor things they have aren't very effective Mm -hmm. they look good and they're expensive and you have to keep filling them with stuff and if you get a big surge of water which is what you get then they they can't treat it fast enough and you know it's kind of putting a band-aid on a knife wound Mm. so yeah I don't know I mean and and the thing I said in Des Moines is why would you want to put your fertilizer in the people's water it was very entertaining little beginning that I did there
0: (laughs) we'll get back to the podcast in a moment but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor BioTill Cover Crop Seed for supporting today's episode BioTill Cover Crops a pioneer and leader in cover crop seed represents a complete lineup of seeds suitable to a wide range of soil types and growing conditions. BioTill Cover Crop vendors are committed to your success and provide local resources, education, guidance, and tips and tricks to ensure your plantings have the correct foundations for success. The original producers of Bounty Annual Ryegrass, BioTill Cover Crops continues to add new and improved cover crop and forage varieties, including Enricher Radish, Bayou Kale, Shield Broadleaf Mustard, African Forage Cabbage, and Mihi Persian Clover. With over 30 years of experience in production, processing, packaging, and shipping, you won't be able to find a better fit for your farm anywhere else. Learn more at biotil.com. That's biotill.com. That's B I O T I L L.com. And now back to the podcast. Well,
2: since we're talking about water, I mean, one of the other things you talked about is the broken water cycle. And I just wonder if you could talk about that
1: a little bit explain that well I mean the, you know you take where you live and where it's normal is trees right
3: mm-hmm.
1: native vegetation trees that's got a different water cycle in a cornfield by a long way and and that tree takes the deep water and the nutrients and takes it up and and puts it in the leaves and the leaves fall down and replenishes the nutrients on the surface I mean that's how that whole system works in high in areas where the precipitation exceeds the evapotranspiration for appreciable amounts of the year so you have trees and and they're the cyclers whereas here we have the deep deep rooted grasses in all cases we're not not using that so now we have to put lime on because you know when nitrates go into the drain tiles or go out they don't go alone they're negative charged so mm-hmm. if they went by themselves <laughs> there'd be lightning bolts coming out of that water right because it's all negative charge so you have to have a positive the cations go out with them and that's that's the calcium and the magnesium and the ammonium and those all these things that are fertilizers copper uh iron whatever that's that's the guys that go out there when the nitrogen goes out the nitrate so what's supposed to happen is those get picked back up and taken to the top and put on top of the ground mm-hmm. and so how do you handle that I mean it's it's you know and since you're not mimicking that you're not taking the water out of that deep part of the soil profile where the tree roots are then then all of a sudden that becomes full of water all the time. And you're only dealing with the top three feet of the soil that as soon as that gets full, you're too wet. And as soon as it gets dry, you're too dry and you get too low in nitrogen. I mean, it's just it just none of that works. And and if we don't fix that, it's going to turn into a desert or, you know, all the nutrients are going to go away. And organic matter is one of those nutrients, but the other nutrient, I mean, that's that's the definition of the certification is a export of the nutrients. And we've been doing and not only do we export them with the grain and whatever, we're exporting them out to tile lines in a way. I mean, just you could ask Ray Ward how, how much calcium comes out of the tile lines in Illinois or wherever. He's got a contract someplace in the east to test all the drain tile lines. And he just said to me when he, boy, there's just a lot of line comes comes out of there when when those drain tiles run, right? So now you got to buy more lime. See, and and then that means hauling it in and and whatever. So, uh that's that's fixing the water cycle and and that's associated very closely with the nutrient cycle and both of those are associated with the energy cycle.
2: And you had mentioned salinity earlier, and so that whole water cycle Yep. leads to the salinity problems.
1: Well, what and what's in the saline seat. This is my favorite question uh-huh. to, to college students that right. come to visit. What's in a saline seep? And if they say salt, they, they get, just get their butts kicked. <laughs> because there's lots of different kinds of salts. Uh-huh. Uh, chemistry, you take an acid, a base, and you mix them together, and you get a salt. So lime is a salt, right? Yeah. Uh, sodium chloride is a salt, but lime is a salt. All these things that where you took an acid base and combined them. Mm-hmm. And and the answer to that is fertilizer. What's in that saline seep is the nutrients, of the ones the trees didn't pick up or the grass didn't pick up and put back on the surface. Those are going somewhere now.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And since that bottom is full, they hit an impermeable layer someplace. If, if they don't hit an impermeable layer, they go into the aquifer directly, which is a problem. Too and but if they hit a impermeable layer of some sort they go sideways, and then they they come back to the surface in low spots and that's where you see them.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And in the uh, Hawaii project, if they would have built it, they would have had drain tiles twenty foot deep to get rid of all the salinity, but they would have ruined the James River doing that. And they'd stuck all that salinity in the James River, which goes into the miss Missouri River, which goes into the Mississippi River, which goes into the Gulf of Mexico.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, <laughs>
2: <laughs> and isn't there a biological component also that's missing in these salinity issues uh, because you don't have the right soil biology to deal with the with the nutrients that are in there and washing away?
1: Well, mostly it's a biology component because they're not, you don't have plants that are taking up. It's not a soil uh, microbiological problem as bad as it is uh, just not having uh, the roots where they need to be. Mm -hmm. Like in in Australia, I don't know if you've been there, but
3: Mm -mm.
1: uh, almost all the areas where they farm were trees at one time, big trees.
2: Oh, okay.
1: And you think Australia is being dry. But they have big trees, and the reason they have big trees is is their rainfall comes in the winter time when it's cool, and so it it you're not using much water when it's cool, and and if you only have wheat out there or canola, it's not using much water, so a lot of that water sneaks out the bottom and um, moves sideways and becomes a saline seep there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they you you lose a tremendous amount of nutrients and the pH goes down I mean one of the symptoms of moving nutrients out is pH is going down and that's happening every place in the corn belt and that happens in Australia but even things like potassium which you don't really think of I mean potassium is one of those and we had had an example years ago when I went there and and they were trying to grow sorghum and they said they couldn't because it was too dry. We went out to a field, and, and, yeah, most of the field had drought symptoms and it wasn't doing very well. But right around the lone tree in the field, the sorghum looked great. And so I said, why does the sorghum look great there? And the guy said, well, because the tree cracks, there's ground, and the water can move back up and whatever. And I went, No, I don't think so. Because <laughs> Normally, the plants around a tree look shitty, right, yeah, the right. tree sees. And what was happening there was, was a potassium deficiency. Potassium deficiency is a drought symptom. You, when you have a drought, you get potassium deficiency because it's too dry for the plant to get the potassium from the soil. And so it's, that's one thing my good mentor, Paul Carson, told me that was his favorite deficiency symptom was potassium. And so when we tested the soil around the tree, it was like 200 parts per million potassium and away from the tree, it was five. Wow. So, yeah, no, it was just very dramatic. But um, yeah, it was very common to see that, and you see that everywhere. You know that that we just sweep There's a guy from Ontario called Wheat Pete. I can't remember what his full name is, but he does a lot of speaking, mm-hmm. and and he came to the South Dakota no-till meeting, and then we went out for steaks with a bunch of farmers afterwards, and. And I wasn't being a jerk, but he, he was saying to how far do you guys have to go to get lime?" And and I said, three feet. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, I, and I wasn't being an asshole. I mean, I was serious. I was just I was in the conversation. I'm well totally like three feet away. And you know, he was thinking how many miles do you have to drive to the lime mine? And and I said about three feet and he looked at me and whatever (laughs) but nobody thinks that way you know where can i go buy it and bring it in same way with fertility how do i get the fertility yeah and and, but the biology associated with salinity is just just fixing the water cycle
2: well and so if i understand what you're saying about the lime you're saying that it's there it just needs to be Unlocked, yeah, if
1: you dig a pole, if you come someday, we'll dig a postal uh-huh. or we'll take a soil sample. We take a soil sample here um, at three or three and a half feet. There's all these white concretions in there, mm-hmm. white specks. It just looks like freckles. Yeah, and what that is is free lime. And everybody, but if I put a drain tile underneath there, that lime moves right out and into the drain tile and goes down the river. Now i know how the hell to go get it Mm -hmm. and and in your environment the line would be there and the tree would bring it back up and drip it off and in australia that tree is not a deciduous tree but it's it drips off of the branches and the leaves and whatever back on the soil surface again otherwise everything would be a desert Oh. by now i mean it's in, in 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 a rainforest with all the rain that they get that's just not a that's just not an issue because they're using it all the time you know that because they have all that warm weather and they just constantly have water going up and going out into the atmosphere and
2: well and then you also have talked about the energy flow being a problem in ag so.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah it comes especially this year it comes from Russia and Ukraine
3: mm-hmm. what do you mean
1: Yeah, I mean it, it, you know we i I don't know if you know Darren Qualman's name or not, but he's got some really interesting stuff. He's from Canada,
3: uh-huh, yeah,
1: and he talks a lot about energy. I use quite a bit of his stuff in my talk at um Louisville okay um, and we have to c- capture all the sunlight as much as we can and utilize it. Mm-hmm. And and if you do corn and soybeans, you look at how little of the sunlight in a year, you're not really kept capturing the sunlight until sometime in June. And then you're done by mid-September. So let's say mid-June to mid-September. That's like three months
3: mm-hmm.
1: out of 12 that you're capturing sunlight. And, you know, what are you doing with the rest of it? Yeah. And and you turn the ground black so it it can't capture any sunlight. And you know and the cover crops do a bit of that. That's a new thing. But we're we're not quite getting there. We have a lot of months where we're we're not having things grow. We have winter too.
2: Yeah. A lot of winter.
1: <laughs> and we have sunlight there though. Yeah. But that's the energy cycle. How you how you cycle. And if you take that, when you take the corn off and sell it energy went with with that corn Mm -hmm. but and nutrients too so you know like we have an ethanol plant here and we have we do pressing we press our own oils on farm but Mm -hmm. in the area we have an ethanol plant and when they were going to build that the thing i said to them is if you if you do this and you ship the ethanol out what's left is uh sunlight carbon dioxide and water that's what's in the ethanol mm-hmm. and so yeah there's some energy some sunlight that went away mother nature will bring you sunlight back she will bring you carbon dioxide back she'll bring you water back but if you ship the distiller's grain and it goes to China or it goes to Kansas or I don't care uh, to be used for for feed then you then your minerals go away right and, and so if you if you can get guys to feed the distiller's grain here or the meal from the soybean pressing, or canola pressing or whatever, then you've closed a lot of those loops in terms of capturing the energy because the energy is in that grain too, you know, so if if you fed that corn here to your cows, and you've captured that energy here and done something with it here that turns into a benefit on the landscape. So just shipping it out is not necessarily the right answer, but it's it's to just make, push it one step higher to where you have the oil and you have the the ethanol and, and keeping the meal back and using those locally is better
2: mm-hmm. closer. We are very critical of the subsidies, of course, which I think with good reason. Yeah, well, and
1: and then and then the you know the well intentioned crop insurance which is subsidized that's right? That, right yeah but I got a call the other day and of course if they're going to do some of these things underneath the insurance deal they have to have a quote-unquote expert that writes a letter and say yeah this this is a legitimate step right see. and they used to only have prevent planted for being too wet hmm. but now they have a prevent plant for being too dry also
3: uh-huh.
1: so so if it's if you do something really stupid, like great grow sunflowers and plant and planting spring wheat the next year
3: mm-hmm. in
1: central South Dakota, your chance of being too dry is pretty high. Mm-hmm. And so they wanted a letter from me that said that, yeah, it's reasonable for it to be too dry for a guy to plant wheat into there. And I, I wouldn't write the letter, <laughs> I just said, no, he no-tilled and whatever and done the right rotation, he wouldn't be too dry.
3: Um, uh But
1: I could see why he wanted to do it, because if he could prevent plant because he's too dry, he's got sunflower stocks. We've been in this drought. He could get 66% of his payment, and he had to wait 25 days until after the last plant date for spring wheat. Mm -hmm. And he could plant forage crops there Mm
3: -hmm.
1: and harvest those forage crops for forage this year. Mm-hmm. And still get his wheat payment. So he, he's going to get, if he had $200 on it, he's going to get $120, $132 mm-hmm. just for being too dry. Uh-huh. And and then be able to raise all the forage he wants to for his cows. Mm-hmm. And I just said to the guys, if I'm in the farm program, I'm going to do that one every year. Right. Because I got cows, you know, screw it. You know, it's always too dry to plant spring wheat behind sunflowers. So. I'm going to do that. And, and you're going to give me my money. And, right? uh-huh. <laughs> and he was the agent, you know, he didn't, he, you know, he didn't, he didn't really have a dog in the fight, but he wants to keep the guy happy because he paid him money for premium. Right. So uh-huh. but it's not his money that right. he's given to the guy. Right. It's not like it's a company where you've got to make it pay. It's just, well, yeah, the government's going to pay him off and away you go.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: But, yeah, it it just it rewards really bad behavior.
2: Well, I'm going to bring up another topic that people disagree about a lot. Um,
1: yeah.
2: I wanted to ask you about the carbon markets. Um, I'm going to assume that you have some familiarity with the Chicago climate <laughs> change, which was, you know, a voluntary carbon credit marketplace back in the early 2000s, and it closed down in 2010. and. Just curious what your thoughts are on today's carbon sequestration programs and how they're different from what uh, the Chicago Climate Exchange was all about.
1: Well, the Chicago Climate Exchange actually grew out of the mind of Carl Cooper, the okay. Shepherd's Grain guy.
3: Oh, is that right?
1: Yeah. Oh. and That was his little. And that was a lease. You were leasing carbon. You weren't. weren't selling your carbon you were leasing carbon that was the premise of the chicago carbon exchange we had a really good no-till conference on carbon in i think it was 2005. okay way before anybody else was talking about that and we we had people that were doing the leasing and people that at that time were trying to do the verification and whatever and and we yeah we had Jerry Hatfield and Rikoski and all these guys there. And, and then in the evening, we had all the people who were trying to buy either Chicago carbon or permanent carbon or whatever, mm. a panel discussion. And the guy who moderated the panel was a lawyer who was also a farmer. And so every time they present their thing, and this is what we're going to do, and here's our agreement, I'd say, and Doug had looked at them all before this thing. And I said, OK, Doug, are you going to recommend anybody do that? Mm. <laughs> and what are the ramifications and whatever, and that, that evening session, it was like 1030, and it was still just going mm. wild. And it was just time to quit. And I just kind of walked up and it says, what about the word permanent? Don't you people understand?
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And, and that's really what it comes down to, the permanent. If you sell somebody your carbon, that's a permanent thing.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: And so if I'm chairman of Exxon and I'm going to buy carbon, I want it to be permanent. I don't want to have to watch it. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to buy the stuff that they're going to take in that pipeline, which is an incredibly stupid idea. Take from those ethanol plants in that pipeline up to North Dakota and pump them into a well. Uh Are you familiar with that pipeline?
2: Uh, I'm not sure. Okay. um, All
1: the ethanol plants in Iowa, um, Minnesota, Nebraska, South Dakota, probably some further out, they got together because they they just put off a huge amount of CO2. uh And that that negates them to being good guys from the standpoint of a carbon market.
3: Mm -hmm. So
1: they're going to build this pipeline, pump the carbon dioxide all the way up to North Dakota and put it in one of those wells they've been taking oil out of and then and then cap the well so that's permanently permanently there so it's permanent so if i'm if i'm the chairman of exxon i'm going to buy that carbon. i'm not going to buy oh whatever dwayne beck's carbon he doesn't have any. but dwayne beck's carbon where he's got ruth and then as soon as she gets bad at him she gets half the land (laughs) and 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 then she's gonna marry some guy and he's gonna get his plow out and start plowing and there goes my carbon
2: right Mm -hmm.
1: i mean how do you how do you assure that it's permanent
2: yeah right
1: the, the only people that really make money on this whole thing and i said that that night in euron years ago the only people that make money on this thing right now is the aggregators the verifiers and the lawyers Mm -hmm. so you got all these people like indigo and whatever they're running around trying to get farmers to sign up and you sell them carbon and then they're aggregated and they're going to sell it to somebody else and their way of verifying it is they're going to put one stake out there someplace that that they take a picture of every year Mm -hmm. to make sure you're keeping your carbon i don't know how in the hell that tells me anything, right (laughs) (laughs) but but, you know, so that's how they're going to verify. Somebody has to verify that you're doing what you said you're going to do. Yeah. And and so the verifiers make money, and and the farmer, I don't know how much money he makes. And so instead of trying to sell it to the government, and that's what the Chicago climate change is basically selling to government says selling to the government or some, you know, why why would I sell my carbon to Boeing or to Delta Airlines? You know why would I sell my carbon to them? Because I got to watch it, mm-hmm. and you know. And then the other thing that comes in there is people don't understand it—biological carbon. But yeah. if you remember the Glasgow conference a few months ago, mm-hmm. when everybody, the all climate thing, they got together in Glasgow, Scotland, oh, and yeah. they and they agreed that they would would try to keep the temperature increase. Uh, to one and a half degrees Celsius or less mm-hmm. So what happens to everybody's carbon if the temperature goes up one and a half degrees Celsius? But what happens is everything starts to gas off carbon. The organic matters and soils in Wisconsin, when it's cool, are higher than they are if you go two hundred miles south um, at the same rainfall uh same way in nebraska and north dakota and south dakota and canada you have this this uh, change in organic matter gets higher as you go north and same rainfall to get so what's going to happen if we raise everybody's temperature the ocean's going to kick out a bunch of co2 and uh, uh, rainforests are going to kick out a bunch of co2 the soils in the rainforest and the soils here unless i change and become better they're going to go down and we're mm-hmm. unless I do something better right so I say I've sold all my carbon to somebody and they come back and go where'd my carbon go yeah <laughs> you told me you were going to keep my carbon here and it's gone yeah no I, I'm not selling my, the carbons for me uh-huh. see I want to keep the carbon for me Yeah. It it makes my soil better, makes everything work better. I'm gonna keep for me. I'm not gonna promise anybody else I'm gonna keep it for them, I'm gonna keep it for me.
3: Mm -hmm. No. Okay.
1: Now we have we have some, you know, some one of our board members that got a bunch of grassland out west and he got twenty dollars an acre for his grassland last year and ten dollars an acre for the next whatever years, if he just leaves it in grass. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure they're trying to keep you know measure carbon there they're just it kept in grass well that's okay
2: so that's more just a practice-based kind of
1: whatever yeah. you know but yeah how do you i had a zoom with uh ernst and young you know that term who they are they're oh,
3: yeah they're, they're
1: big accounting yeah big accounting people right
3: yeah
1: there, there were people there from Eastern Europe, all the way through the U.S., Australia, New Zealand, and some from like Hong Kong or whatever.
3: Mm-hmm. Just this
1: huge 500 people or something on this Zoom talking about carbon things. And I started talking about this kind of stuff, and they weren't very happy because what they were wanting to be is the verifiers and the aggregators, right? They thought this was a great business model, and I'm just kind of going, well, yeah, but you can't. What about the word permanent? Don't you understand? You've got to try to worry about is the stuff permanent? Mm-hmm. And, you know, the guy's pumping it in the ground is permanent, maybe. <laughs> but, you know, to put it, you know, Hans Yenny said, you know, Hans there's a spell with the J, um, old soil, soil scientists and his, his work is free on the web because everybody thought it was so good that somebody paid for it and put it on the web.
2: What was the name?
1: Hans Yenny, J-E-N-N-Y. Oh, okay. Um, but he you know, he said organic matter, you know, the value of organic matter is comes when you use it. You know, use it to hold water, use it when you it gives off nutrients or whatever. I mean, the active organic matter. I mean the best way to store carbon is to take a bunch of coal and bury it.
2: Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. Interesting. Okay.
1: Well, I mean you take these cities, they're they're taking their yard waste and stuff and then they're they're composting them and thinking it's a good thing. If you really want to get carbon out of the atmosphere, just bury that stuff.
2: hmm hmm Yeah.
1: Don't don't cycle it, bury it.
2: So getting back to the whole concept of doing the wrong thing better, what would you like to see happen in the next few years that would give you the sense that we're no longer doing that? That we're, you know, changing course and Starting to do the right thing.
1: Well, I don't know. There's just the one thing. You know, the thing is it's gotta be uh I talk about this brain transplant thing, it's gotta be agriculture's got and society maybe has to just say, okay, we're not doing this shit anymore. Yeah. And the and the first thing we gotta do is try to get the carbon out, the 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 fossil fuel out. That's that's it should just be almost like a World War II effort. Mm-hmm um to to try to try to stop using fossil fuels Mm -hmm. and 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 once that's your goal then i think a bunch of other things become real obvious because what we're doing right now is say well maybe if i just do this different or maybe if i sold my carbon makes me you know and, and darren Coleman did this thing for the canadian farmers union where he's saying that every farm if you follow it all the way through is a net emitter no matter what they're doing i see no matter what they claim they're doing and whatever they're a net emitter now you could get to the point where when you hit the the gate you might be depending on whose work you do uh you might be a, a net zero or something mm-hmm. but then you've got to send that stuff off and somebody's got to make it into something you know bake the bread or do whatever and it becomes a net user fuel Um, so you know to try to wrap our minds around i mean that's why we have this goal of being zero net energy by 2026 is is kind of like when we started no-tilling we did we just started Mm no-tilling and said we're going to do this and 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 ralph was heavy in that that decision but Um, but if you just start no telling, then you have to figure out, but if you're in that situation, you've got to figure out how to, how to handle things. And, and we just got to commit, you've got to commit to just not using fossil fuels Uh instead of saying, can we, can we scale back? Can we scale back? I mean, it's like a diet, you know, you, you, you keep trying to scale back and it doesn't work all that well.
2: Well, Dwayne, this has been really good. Is there anything else you wanted to add or that I didn't think to ask about that you would like to talk about?
1: Well, I mean, the, only, the thing is that we've only started. I mean, I I wish that we could have on every level, not just agriculture. We had research and science that really was focused on long-term sure. things versus short-term things. Um, yeah. And and all we've really done is kind of stop the bleeding of, I think I probably said that in Louisville, all we've done is stop the bleeding. The, the healing the patient still has to happen.
0: Thanks to Dwayne Beck for sharing his thoughts on fixing the broken ecosystem services. To listen to more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies, please visit no-tillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, BioTill Cover Crop Seed, for helping to make this no-till podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jagerlock at lesnarmedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our No-Till Insider daily and weekly email updates and Dryland No-Tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at No-Till Farmer with Farmers F-A-R-M-R and our No-Till Farmer Facebook page. For our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Julia Gerlock. Thanks for tuning in.